You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. Joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. Fantastic. No, I was, I'm overselling it a little bit. I know. I was about to, I thought I was about to do some deep dive investigative journalism here to find out why the normally curmudgeonly Ben Folks would show up 15 minutes late at my house to record this episode of the podcast, declaring that he was doing quote unquote fantastic. Listen, you gotta, I told you that one time a few weeks ago when I was 15 minutes early, I told you it would come back around and today it came back around. They were even Steven now. Stopped off to maybe smoke some of the methamphetamine in that 15 minutes. Shows up saying he's fantastic. Well, I'm in the right neighborhood for it. You know, that's true. Ben, once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. If you haven't checked out the Daily Fantasy MMA at DraftKings.com, what are you waiting for? This weekend, you got UFC 189, and even with some last-minute shuffling of the card, it still shapes up as one of the biggest events of the year. Start this weekend, and you can play to win big money. It's easy. Just pick your fighters, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. That's it. You can score points. Points for significant strikes, advances, takedowns, knockdowns, and more. Ben, tell our wonderful listeners about the promo code, which includes the chance to win a little something extra this week. That's right, Chad. You hurry to DraftKings.com now and use code CME to play for free this weekend. First place takes home twenty grand. Finish in the top ten, and you qualify to win the Reebok Prize Package, which includes two tickets to UFC Fight Night Dillashaw versus Barrow Two in Chicago, hotel and airfare, and tons of Reebok gear. Enter CME now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Everybody wants that Reebok That's Prize right. Package. Tons of Reebok gear. Just tons. Well, I bet they got it to give away. What do you think? I bet you you, you show up with a, a Giblert Melendez shirt and you'll be the envy of all the kids on your block. Fantastic, this guy says. Never been fantastic in his life. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, is there anything more UFC than to take your featherweight champion, a guy you know goddamn good and well gets injured all the damn time, throw caution to the wind, and promote the ever-loving shit out of his fight to the point that you ignore all other attractions at UFC 189, and then, once you finally, eventually, painstakingly have to admit that, yes, that guy who gets injured all the time got injured again, to then be like, man, fuck this guy we're having an interim title and the best case scenario the best case scenario is that we end up doing this exact same shit again six months from now that was all just the intro to the round right just a teaser no we're gonna talk more about it okay than that just trying to make sure in round number two giblert giblert we can do it again brother we can do it again 
By the way, props to longtime co-main event podcast listener and frequent emailer Dan O, whose idea it was to use Gibbler, we can do it again, brother, as the uh, tease for round number two. I'm sure you needed a lot of convincing. Oh, he, well, he was right, obviously. Yeah. He was right. And so, Dan O, we salute you. In round number three, is there anything more Rory McDonald than being in a damn title fight? that people only kind of care about. And then even if you win, everybody's going to be like, yeah, cool, all hail the Red King. Now get those damn featherweights out of here to do the damn thing. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes from Enrique Ortiz. He writes... So far, Giblert Melendez's UFC run has been somewhat unimpressive. This that's is just gonna, this that's is just keep happening. It's going to happen for the rest of of his career, such wow. as it is. What a tremendous disservice they've done to poor Gilbert Melendez. Uh, he is one and three, admittedly, with two very close split decisions and a win over Diego freaking Sanchez. Out of all people, today he tested positive for an exogenous origin of testosterone metabolites. In the wake of this, what do we make of Giblert and his future in the UFC as a quote-unquote top lightweight? Please discuss. So, Ben, yes, we found out, weirdly enough, a bit, a little bit of breaking news that occurred before the podcast recorded today. Which makes you think that there's got to be like a huge tidal wave of something coming yes, after as, the podcast, while right? we're recording this now, the UFC is in the process of selling the whole show to some faceless hedge fund right now, as we speak. Uh, we found out... That, that Gilbert Melendez tested positive for, uh, some extra testosterone metabolites. Well, yeah. And the phrasing of that, I'm glad that, uh, Enrique Ortiz highlighted that because the phrasing of that suggests that they did not catch him with like an elevated TE ratio necessarily, but that maybe that they caught him with the, uh, carbon isotope ratio testing because that's really what detects the presence of like testosterone that did not come from your body, basically, which is what exogenous origin of testosterone metabolites essentially means as i understand it um so yeah not necessarily like super high like levels of detectable testosterone to epitestosterone stuff in his body but that they found some kind of foreign testosterone material and then melendez's response to it in his statement uh makes it seem like he's immediately copping to it and going with the i took something i didn't know was banned defense Right. Also, again, Which, isn't it weird how when the UFC catches somebody, like in Mexico City where the UFC is basically acting as its own regulator, and then when the news comes out, it's not like an athletic commission where they're like, we caught this guy, we're going to have a hearing, the guy jumps up says, no, I didn't do this, I'm going to fight this and clear my name, and then we have a thing over it, which is what happens, it seems, more often than not, and except when the UFC gets it, by the time they tell us the news, they've already like agreed to a, a punishment with the guy he has a statement already and it's all just kind of boom, one big package shoved out there for you. I continue to enjoy the fact that as a professional athlete, one of the main go-to excuses for testing positive for any kind of performance enhancer is that you took something that you didn't know what it was. 
or that you took. And, you know, actually, since the, the supplement industry is kind of like an unregulated Wild West type scenario, uh, my understanding, it's totally possible to, that you might take some kind of tainted supplement uh, or like, you know, workout powder that, that has a bunch of banned substances in it. But at the same time, man, if you are a professional athlete, I would think you would make it your business to know that that was the case and to not, you know, take your GNC gift certificate down to the mall and blow it on weird fucking cryo muscle and gorilla like max. Yeah. The See? silver back. Yeah. No, I mean, that is, that would seem like reason enough not to do any weird supplement powders because like you said, I mean, that industry is so unregulated that it's basically like, like going into a bar and having a, a swig from the jug that just has three X's on it. Like, you don't know. You, you have no way of knowing what's in there. I suppose, well, Gilbert Melendez banned for a year after this, uh, being caught with the, with the, the funky testosterone. And I suppose if there's a, a silver lining, for the now very close to being mid thirties Gilbert Melendez, it's that he'll only be banned for a year that he snuck this one in past the goalie before the, the actual heightened drug testing and, and, uh, uh, sanctions for the UFC kick in. Otherwise he might've been banned for two years, uh, after this first offense. I don't know if you want to call that a silver lining for Gilbert Melendez, but it's, I guess it's better than we, he would have done if he had tested positive next week at UFC 189. From his perspective, definitely a silver lining. And also already people kind of make the, uh, the comparison, like, wait a minute. So he tests positive, gets a year, uh, earlier, a few months earlier, uh, Alexander Slomenko in California, you know, different jurisdiction, everything, uh, test positive. Um, again, his was a, they caught him with a TE ratio, an insanely high TE ratio from what they said. Uh, 50 to 1, which like is normal for a Russian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he gets like three years. And so, you know, it, that does at least highlight the need for us to figure out across the board in this sport what we want to do about it. Because we can't go on having uh, – and I mean, like you said, the, the other punishments are going to kick in. But we can't have a thing where – it depends where you get caught and you might be suspended this long or three times that long. Like that's, that's untenable. Right. Yeah. We, you know, we got another email on this subject that I almost used where the emailer asked us how high on the list of guys that we were quote unquote, pretty sure weren't on PEDs. Gilbert Melendez would have been yeah, previous to pop popping positive. And it is a good question because dare I say the answer would have been, you know, fairly high. Gilbert yeah. Melendez is not a guy that you would look at it and have suspicions or, or, you know, uh, that there are rumors or innuendo floating out there about. And so I guess at this point, we at least have to broach the topic, which I think we've mentioned before on the show, but when these new drug testing, you know, regulations and regimen kick in, uh, this, this week, this, I guess they started, right? July 1st was when they were gonna go into effect and, and now we're, we're living in the new drug testing world. Well, I don't know about uh, the, te the testing hasn't actually begun. The enhanced testing, but done by like USADA, that hasn't actually begun. And from what they say, that's gonna take a little while. Okay. But we're, we're now in the, the realm the of the, the new punishments. And it's a new day, like so to speak. So to speak. We have to reckon with the possibility that it just puts everyone out of business, right? That like everybody in the world is on some kind of performance enhancer and that we have to fold up the tent and think of a new carnival hustle with which to make our, our living. <laughs> um, that could be. I guess I, I've had the same kind of feeling about Gilbert Melendez that I would I'm surprised to hear that. I mean, if you told me Gilbert Melendez was going to test positive for something, 
I would have taken a pretty confident guess at what it was, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been anything performance enhancing. Right. And you're right that, you know, he doesn't look super jacked, didn't fight like a guy who was on anything extra special in that one. Not once. on the EPO for certain. It seemed to feel the effects of the altitude there. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So I don't know. I, I'm not yet ready to take this as a sign that all is lost and absolutely everybody is on the juice, but this should, for some other people, stuff like this should prompt some, uh, some reevaluation, so to speak. Yeah, would it be so bad if everybody just got off steroids? Maybe we'll find out. I guess we will. Uh, next question this week comes from Luke Hanawell, his second week in a row. Nice. As scoring a spot in the uh, listener mail. He writes... One morning you get the turkey, right? That's right, yeah. We send you a frozen turkey for to enjoy with your family on Thanksgiving. I guess there are some UFC fights happening on Sunday this weekend, too? Question mark. Do any of the fights on this card have any significance? Question mark. Are going to say the question marks every time? Per- well, the first one... I felt like I needed to say to give his his opening statement its true context. But your voice context. went up. I, I felt like I got it. Well, you got it, but like not the entire CME listening audience is not as perceptive and sharp as attack as, as Ben Folks. Period. Question mark? Exclamation point. <laughs> Do any of the fights on this card have any significance? <laughs> Michelle Watterson's debut that or was Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Jake the Juggernaut Ellenberger? See, and then we just kind of trail off there at the end. <laughs> okay. uh, but well, damn it, now we're going to make us go and remember, oh, yeah, there's a tough finale on Sunday. Not How many people that, forgot that? Right. Most well, people? everyone, including me, as I had to G-chat you earlier today. Uh, and as you reminded me at the time, not only that, but there's Invicta, right, on Victor Thursday. Invicta on Thursday, that's right. This is actually, we, we this is International Fight Week, right? Sure is it, it is. not? Sure. Papa Roach or somebody is probably playing <laughs> on the street in front of the Gold Nugget down you, on Fremont Street? You think you're joking, but you might not be. No, I actually do think that it's Papa Roach. Really? Right? Yeah. Is some 41 going to be there? Oh, no. You know who it is, actually? Isn't it Dropkick Murphys that they got? Okay, maybe the... it is. God, the world. We better hope Dana White never finds out about flogging Molly, right? <laughs> They'll play every international fight week for the rest of the time. Looking at the card of the Tough 21 uh finale the this is this was the season of tough where the black zillions versus the uh att that sounded cool at the start and then just fell apart almost immediately as soon as it started we all realized it wasn't as cool as we thought it was going to be uh you got your main event jake ellenberger versus stephen thompson as mentioned in the in the email and as i told you right before we came on the air here uh, a bunch of dudes on this card who at one time seemed like they might be something, including Daryl the Mongoose Montague, the former flyweight champion over there of the Tachi Palace fights, and uh, Max- Maximo Blanco. Remember him from Strike Force? He I seemed like he was going to be really awesome, except he couldn't follow the damn rules. Just kept cheating his ass off. So this this card is kind of like uh, guys who we thought were going to be okay, and now you end up fighting on a Sunday on the Tough Twenty One finale. Um, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a screw job for the people fighting on this because, man, so much effort went into promoting UFC 189 that they almost forgot about UFC 188. Well, and that had the damn heavyweight championship on the line. Hell, chat. man, they almost forgot about every other fight on UFC 189 <laughs> except for the fight that is now not happening. And, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the hardcore fan base is all it takes is a little reminder, a little nudge in the ribs to be like, oh, by the way, there's fights on also tomorrow and they're free. So, hey, why not? Why not flip the channel over there, see Michelle Watterson do it against Angela Magana? Uh, but it also 
this I think this stretch that we're in right now highlights what happens when the UFC has this many fights and has to prioritize which ones to promote, which is that there's just not enough energy to go around to remind everybody, oh yeah, this is also happening. Some people are bound to uh, just kind of get forgotten there, even if they have awesome fights, which is a shame. Yeah, and obviously this is the tough finale, so it's going to be in Las Vegas and and. When the schedule is as hectic as it is, I know that you probably can't plan it out as well as we would all like. But but to my mind, this would have been a good one to have, like, kind of the overseas UFC show that would be on at 2 or 3 in the afternoon on Sunday. Because that's really when you're going to be hanging around, working off your UFC 189 hangover when you might just be at home with nothing to do. And you might think, oh, hey, wait. Steven Wonderboy Thompson and Jake the Juggernaut Ellenberger are probably preparing to get it done right now. I should... Switch it over to to Fox Sports One from whatever I'm watching and take that in. But then you have, if you're the UFC, you have to face the prospect of once again, you you know, you have so much staff effort going into UFC 189 in Las Vegas, and then you also got to have people on the ground in Mannheim, Germany, or wherever this imaginary fight pass event of yours would take place. Uh, and I know they're crazy about Jake the Juggernaut Ellenberger in uh, Mannheim, but it's a real bummer it's for them. Big over there, out. yeah. Can't even walk down the street. The next question this week comes from Josh Montgomery, who writes, BJ Penn is being inducted into UFC's Hall of Fame this weekend. BJ in his prime was appointment TV to me. It was sort of sad to see him seemingly sudden and to see his seemingly sudden and sharp decline there at the end. I'd like to hear you guys look back at BJ's career and give us listeners your thoughts on him on the eve of his induction. Uh, we have talked about this in the past on this show during... Uh, the, the tail end of BJ Penn's career. I, as you know, have never been what you might describe as a BJ Penn guy. You're a hater. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'll go quite that far. You're a hater Jeff, either, yes. but I was never a, a huge fan. I understand the appeal. I know, you know, why he was popular and was a guy that won championships in, in a couple of weight classes and, and was probably, you know, one of the most naturally gifted guys who ever uh, came around in this sport, especially during his day, uh, but was always a guy that I felt like could have done more and a guy who, if he had, had, you know, really taken his training to the, to the top level that a lot of other fighters and other camps did during his, his tenure that we could have seen even better things from BJ Penn. He ended on a one five and one slump in the UFC from 2010 to 2014. Uh, but I got no, I mean, considering that the, the, the Hall of Fame is at this point still sort of an employee of the month award and will continue to be as long as the, uh, UFC controls it itself. I know that they've taken some steps to try to, uh, legitimize a little bit more than they have, but I mean, I'm not going to lose any sleep over who's, who is and who isn't going in the UFC controlled UFC Hall of Fame. True or false? BJ Penn, greatest lightweight champion in UFC history. False, Ben, because there is no greatest lightweight champion in UFC history. It's like trying to figure out greatest heavyweight champion in UFC history. There isn't one. It's just <laughs> a fucking chaotic nightmare from start to finish. I think you can make more of a case for that at heavyweight than you can at lightweight. Well, yeah. The, I mean, the heavyweight division, as a nightmarish hellscape, makes a case for itself. Lightweight, uh, maybe... I mean, I mean, it's, it's either like, it's him, it's him. either him or Frankie or Benson, right? Because they're the dudes that that didn't just have it and immediately cough it up. It's not going to be Benson. 
Let's say that. No, well, now no one's, no one's voting for Benson for that. No, now we've devolved into like local New York sports talk radio. Okay, but I'm just it's saying it's not going to be Benson. If, if I'll tell not, you that. If it's not, well, anything sounds like New York talk radio when you say it like that. <laughs> if it's not BJ Penn, then the only alternative I think is it's either BJ Penn or nobody in your nihilistic argument that you want to advance there. And that's kind of my point is I think that BJ Penn sometimes his record. Uh, looks worse than it really is because kind of a virtues of his faults thing. He had had a lot of wild career ambitions at times. He his, did. his insistence on fighting way out of his weight class at times, ranging from either like, I want to fight for the welterweight belt or I want to fight Leota Machida for Christ's sakes. Shit like that. Nobody else really did that as much or with as like much commitment to it, even when it seemed like a bad idea as BJ Penn. And I think that that kind of hurts him on paper. Uh, but it also, I, I mean, that's just kind of who BJ Penn was. I think that's all part of the, the legend of BJ Penn there. Right. No, I mean, I think it's a perfectly valid point to say that maybe he was his own worst enemy for a while. Uh, and, you know, a lot of those fights that he had at middleweight and when he fought Machida at, at, at catch weight, and then he, you know, he ended up fighting like Henzo Gracie and, and, uh, a couple other Gracies. Those fights didn't happen in the UFC. So I don't know if we're, if we take that into account as, you know, when we sit down at the board meeting that they have, I'm certain to figure out who they're going to induct into the UFC. Hall Dana of Fame. White does it all by text message. Yes, I'm, I'm sure. like a, a cocktail napkin, probably. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, man, I got, I got nothing against BJ. You know, it was terrible for BJ was when they did that, uh, embedded or countdown or whatever yeah. it was. Was that before the, like before the, the second St. Pierre, Saint fight. Pierre fight yeah. maybe? And, uh, they, you know, he got into a tiff with Dana White during the filming of it, didn't answer the phone when Dana White called and they had that on camera. So of course they used it. Yeah, they kind of buried him in that. Oh, they totally buried him. And it really made, I mean, the juxtaposition of George St. Pierre at TriStar and doing the high tech training. And he used to be a garbage man and he just through grit and determination worked his way up to be a UFC champion. They, they got George St. Pierre like jumping over four foot hurdles. And stuff like that. And then they show BJ Penn out for his jog. He's jogging like four miles. Hey, and he ran the rock. Just these mincing little steps. Don't forget when he ran the rock, man. And then he was like done for the day, right? That was it. <laughs> well, running the rock seemed pretty hard. But no, they did. They really crafted this narrative, uh, which I'm sure it was an easy narrative to craft and the kind of broad brush strokes that make for good fight promotion. George St. Pierre works his way up from being a garbage man and like a funny looking French Canadian kid who was picked on in school and made fun of for his love of karate becomes UFC champ. BJ Penn privileged rich kid uh, from Hawaii who always had it easy and never really worked hard enough uh, to fully maximize his natural gifts. And so he was understandably irked by that, but I do think that that is, rightly or wrongly, still something that kind of stuck to him. But you have to admit that not only was he the this dominant lightweight champion during that era when, for the first time, there was a dominant lightweight champion, but he was also probably the best lightweight of the era when the UFC didn't really want to do the lightweight champion stuff anymore. Like you said, he had those fights outside of the UFC because of his dispute with the UFC. Uh, but... You know, you have to wonder, okay, if he had done all that stuff and been in the UFC and they'd made him be just fighting at lightweight the entire time, how differently would we remember him? I mean, just as far as natural gifts and the things he did when he actually fought in his own division against the dudes who 
you know, we can say what we want about them now, but they were the dudes of the time. Right. And, and he you know, beat them all. Yeah, you're right. And there was a time there, a lightweight, where it seemed like nobody at 155 pounds would ever beat him. You know, he had that string where he tore through uh, Jens Pulver and Joe Stevenson and won the title from Sean Shirk. And then, then he kind of, he, he, this is what I'm talking about, him being his own worst enemy. He goes up to welterweight, loses to George St. Pierre, comes back down and, and tears through Kenny Florian and Diego Sanchez. And, uh, and that, that, that's the point when, when it seemed like, he was basically unbeatable at 155. And then, of course, Frankie Edgar is the next guy who comes along and beats him. But I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm I'm willing to give BJ Penn his due daps, man. Put the guy in the Hall of Fame. All right, there. I said it. Absolutely put him in the Hall of Fame. Last question this week comes from Ryan Robinson. He writes, so UFC fighters can't pump back up after weigh-ins using IV saline drips starting in October. There are various implications, such as name fighters moving weight classes, potentially some athletes that are more depleted fighting, and hopefully a greater discussion around the weight cuts and the effects they have on people's health. Would you guys care to discourse on that topic? Would we? Dis- can we? Can you discourse as a verb? Not, not normally a verb, but I'm willing to go with it here. I mean, well, we read the question, so yeah, obviously we are going to discourse. All right, let's discourse the it. shit out of this one. Uh, okay, so the Ivine... Uh, the IV uh, rehydration technique. Yeah. Not legal everywhere to start with, yeah. right? Not in every uh, principality. Yeah, that's what I wonder is to what degree this is actually going to affect anybody's lives. Because it seems to be getting a lot of publicity, a lot of people talking about whether they like it or not. And yet, I don't know. Like, I had a, a text message exchange earlier today with uh, Andy Foster, the executive director of the California State Athletic Commission, and he is in favor of banning the IV. He says anybody who's using an IV to rehydrate after weigh-ins is in the wrong weight class and is cutting too much water weight uh, just to make it. And then I'm like, but how do you catch somebody using an IV? Because right now they're not legal in a bunch of places. How do you get them? Like, is there a test you can do for it? And he said, to his knowledge, the only way to catch somebody doing it is to see them doing it. Which- Jeff Nowitzki standing behind the curtains. In your hotel suite. You see, that's the thing. When I've seen people using IVs to rehydrate after weigh-ins, they're doing it in their hotel room with the bag clipped to, like, the lampshade in the room at the MGM Grand. Nothing shady about that. <laughs> Maybe I mean, donate a kidney while you're in there. And should Vegas the trip. is, like, the best place in the United States that I know of for a just regular person to get an IV. Like, it's <laughs> the only place where there are... several local businesses around that cater to you if you want an IV basically to recover from a hangover. You don't really see that in a whole lot of other cities. So it's then kind of weird to try to police something like that if you don't have a way to know that they're doing it without actually seeing it with your eyes. Yeah. But this is kind of like a double-edged sword, right? The uh, All of this discussion about IV use and, and rehydration, which I agree is creepy and weird, and is one of the things that make you makes you think that we are involved in a weird carnival sideshow. But all the discussion of that is sort of uh, granular, if you oh, will. Whoa. Ancillary. Like, beside the point, and the, isn't the true point, of course, is that motherfuckers be cutting way too much weight, right? Like, yeah. that's the conversation that needs to be had. The uh, And I think, and I mean, isn't the whole point of banning IV use would be in the hope that it would encourage people to not cut as much weight. But if it doesn't do that, then you got a lot of guys cutting the same amount of weight that they used to cut and not properly rehydrating. And it seems like you could get yourself into a, a whole different uh, kettle of fish there in terms of dangers and whatnot. The, 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 
the thing that needs to happen if you are serious about like limiting weight cuts and all this, like you kind of have to implement some w- rule about how much weight somebody can cut or yeah. something, right? Yeah, all this kind of attacking it around the edges. You're right. It it doesn't necessarily get you where you want to go. And I am sure that there are some people who use IVs to rehydrate who don't necessarily need them. It just sounds like as soon as you hear that somebody else does it, well, shit, man, that sounds like a cool thing to do, right? Like anything that involves a doctor or some kind of medical professional who has to come in there and find your vein, that must mean you're going to do better on fight night, doesn't it, Chad? Come on. You think uh, when they're tacking the IVs up on a lampshade that a medical professional is, is coming in and finding the vein? I know when I saw Tim. Or you think it's like an assistant wrestling coach? Because that's I, what I'm, that's what I imagine. When I saw Tim Kennedy doing it, he had one of his army buddies who was a medic, uh, doing it, which is kind of the nice thing about having a whole bunch of special forces army buddies, I guess. Is there's some guys in there who know how to find a vein in an emergency, if you know what I mean. So I don't know. I don't know who's doing it for everybody, but I'm sure there are some people out there who don't necessarily need it and it's, it's probably not making a big difference for them. But maybe it's a psychological thing or just when they know that other people use IVs, it sounds like any extra little thing that you can get, you're going to want to get. Probably makes you feel a little bit better about how rehydrated you are. Uh, but I don't know. I don't see that rule having a huge immediate effect on anybody's weight cutting or, or rehydration procedures. Yeah, it's weird. I I really honestly don't know very much about like who does it and who doesn't do it and stuff like that. You know that there are some high profile guys like Jose Aldo, frankly, who we're going to talk about a lot more uh, coming up in round one, uh, who has a, a huge weight cut to get down to 145 pounds. And, and obviously we don't know if he IVs or does not IV, but uh, I don't think it's out of the question that doing away with this could affect someone. I don't and and their you know their ability to make the weight class that they fought in for a really long time. So prove to me that you can actually do away with it. Yeah, well, just peeking out from behind the curtains. <laughs> What's that? Damn it! It's Jeff Nowitzki. <laughs> I told you guys to check the shower to see if Jeff Nowitzki was in there. That's when you call Jeff Nowitzki's cell phone and you hear it ringing from behind the curtains. <laughs> it's coming from inside the room. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. So many twists and turns leading up to UFC 189 from way back in the days when we thought it was shaping up as the fight of Conor McGregor's life to go in there and take on the greatest featherweight the world has ever known to the awkward period where it seemed like maybe Jose Aldo had a rib injury that baffled medical science on two continents. And we thought that that perhaps a hobbled and injured version of Aldo would show up. Uh, to fight McGregor, who maybe then had the edge, to then finding out that Aldo was going to, in fact, pull out, and then we're going to get Conor McGregor against Chad Mendez instead in in a, a bizarre, nonsensical interim title bout. Uh, I don't know where we want to start with this, man, except to say that uh, 
It's been a long road, and when we get there on Saturday night with Conor McGregor against Chad Mendez, I still think nobody has a clue what will actually happen, and that is its own kind of fun in and of itself. That is. And the more I think about it, the more I'm not at all mad about this fight. I mean, I wanted to see Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo also, but this fight is really going to tell us what we claimed we wanted to know before right. Conor McGregor was given this title shot, which is, is Conor McGregor really on that level? And right. especially the thing everybody kept saying, can he beat a wrestler? You know, is that going to be his Achilles heel? Does he have that in him to beat a guy who can take him down and, and maul you on the mat? And Chad Mendes is a perfect guy to help you find out. Because if you go in there and you beat Chad Mendes, the damn it, everybody shut up. He absolutely deserves to fight for the UFC featherweight title and might even win the damn thing. If you go out there and you get absolutely wrecked by Chad Mendes, which also seems like, you know, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if that happened, then it starts to make it seem like it was all a really successful UFC hype job to begin with and that he wasn't quite where we were told he was. Either one wouldn't really knock me out of my chair right now. How about you? I agree with you. I remember way back when we first figured out that it was going to be Conor McGregor against Jose Aldo for the featherweight title uh, I was, I was against it or more against it than you were just because I didn't see that Conor McGregor had earned that. I didn't think that he had had a, a, a suitable number one contender fight. And the way that you talked me off the ledge was to say, look, man, we're going to find out if Conor McGregor is anywhere near as good as he keeps saying that he is. And as long I think as I also made the case that there weren't, there wasn't another great, better option that made more sense necessarily. And Jose Aldo's beat everybody else. Right. Basically, you said we were, we were cutting out the middleman. We were going straight for the dessert. We were going to find out, you know, whether or not Conor McGregor could hang with Jose Aldo. And, you know, I thought that was a fine way to go about it. And as you just said, the beautiful part about a, a Chad Mendez fight. Uh, is that you get the same thing. Like, this is essentially a de facto number one contender fight for Conor McGregor. If he right. wins this, he's essentially made his bones at 145 pounds, and, and he'll be 6-0 and in the UFC, and no one could look at him and say that he doesn't deserve to go into what I guess will now be a title unification bout with Jose Aldo, uh, which you got to think would just... Uh, mean even more dollar signs in the eyeballs of UFC executives just spinning like slot machines. Uh, and I don't think you could be mad at it. The interesting thing to me, Ben, here is that you go from this fight with Jose Aldo, which was obviously going to be a huge step up in competition for Conor McGregor and uh, frankly, a huge step up in competition for anybody as far as we know. But, you know, Jose Aldo's stand up based skill set was at least going to play into Conor McGregor's strengths. Now you get this fight against Chad Mendez, who admittedly comes in with like about two weeks to train hard for this fight, we think. Uh, but he arguably represents the worst style matchup for Conor McGregor, maybe in the entire division. Now, see, that's a good point, because I was wondering, too, even if Conor McGregor goes out there and beats Chad Mendez, does that necessarily tell you how he'll do against Jose Aldo? Because the styles are so different. And he could even make it vice versa, that if, if Chad, Chad Mendez goes out there and takes him down and, and just wears him down against the fence with a bunch of short elbows on the ground and doesn't let him get up uh, for five rounds, does that necessarily mean that he wouldn't beat Jose Aldo? You know, I, I don't know. But it does, at least, it gives you something where... If you, if you do beat Chad Mendez, anybody who beats Chad Mendez at this point in time deserves to fight for the UFC title. That's kind of where Chad Mendez is. Yeah. Uh, and it gives the UFC, you know, the ability to still do this huge money fight and to have a little more oomph behind it, if anything. And the Conor McGregor thing is still 
I think for the for the mainstream people that having Conor McGregor still in the fight salvages a lot. I I think that for us we it loses some luster because we hear okay man we were really looking forward to McGregor versus Aldo all those damn ads and a whole world tour kind of thing we sat through McGregor reaching over there grabbing the belt and face to face yelling at each other and now it's not even going to be those two guys anymore to us I think that loses a lot to other people who the only reason they heard about this fight to begin with was because Conor McGregor created enough buzz to kind of reach out of the MMA bubble and, and grab them by the hand and, and pull their attention in. I think that they don't necessarily, they, that's where their ignorance of the sport kind of works in the UFC's favor because you tell them it's still a title fight of some, of some sort. They're probably not looking into it closely enough to figure out all the details. Okay. This crazy Irish dude, that guy's fighting. There's a belt. Somebody's going to go home with a big belt around their waist. Cool. I'll watch that. I think that's still going to work to they, a large extent. They just think that the Brazilian guy he was going to fight got a different haircut. Who it's knows? It's a little bit different in there. Well, now you can tell you can tell those same people like, oh, this hey, this big time American college wrestler, he's he's going to fight this dude, and that might mean something to some of those. I mean, I know the other day I'm sitting there I was on the Fourth of July. I'm sitting there at my house, and I get a text from my dad, and he's like, "Is this UFC fight I'm watching live?" And I'm like, well, no, because there's not a UFC today. And he's like, oh, well, I'm watching this Conor McGregor guy. He seems pretty good. And, you know, so then we get into a text message conversation about Conor McGregor, who, I mean, my dad's sold on Conor McGregor now. Can we publish that text message conversation on, on the co-main event website? Because I would like to, to see how you guys discoursed that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in that discourse. All right, well, let's do this, Ben. Let's proceed under the assumption that Conor McGregor loses to Chad Mendes. Okay. You're going to enrage a bunch of people in the fictional country of Ireland, but okay. Well, I think it's the more interesting storyline. And if we've learned anything from our years covering this sport, it's that the UFC has already enraged the MMA gods by putting all of its eggs in this Jose Aldo-Conor McGregor basket. Clearly, when you do that, one of those people is going to get injured. You're going to have to call that fight off. Now the thing that could go the worst for the UFC is if... Chad Mendez comes out and beats Conor McGregor. How quickly do you think the UFC can rehabilitate Conor McGregor's image from that? Let's just say he just gets trucked. Let's just, let's say Conor, uh, he can't stop Chad Mendez's takedowns and he loses by rear naked choke in the first round. How many fights does it take to rehabilitate Conor McGregor's image? Over one, under, I was going to say one. one. I was about fight. to say over under one. And do you think that the, are we giving the UFC scramble matchmaking too much credit to say that it was that they figured we put Chad Mendez in this fight worst case scenario Chad Mendez beats Conor McGregor he probably loses to Jose Aldo in their eventual title unification fight we get we we drag a, a stake through featherweight alley and find a new Dennis Seaver who comes out and pounces on it right throw a net over him we have Conor <laughs> McGregor fight him and win boom you know by September we're back where we started. I love how in this analogy, Dennis Seaver is like some kind of meat-eating leprechaun. He's an owl, an alley cat. He could just, just be a featherweight alley cat who just is going to pounce on whatever piece of meat you drag through the through a hundred and forty-five pound alley. No, you need one fight, but you also need a video montage that, like, a video package that begins with the silhouette of Conor McGregor, like sitting on a a chair, like I was just plain steel chair in his gym, talking about the dark moments he faced after the loss to Chad Mendes. Um, and then how he rose back up again with a full heart. And then then you got it. 
you need the, the one fight against the the new Dennis Seaver who who you found in the alley video montage boom you're back in the money there but i don't i do think it might be giving the as you say the scramble matchmaking like i think too much conspiracy theory yeah i think the for the ufc it was more of all right who can do this who can do this now and also i think that maybe the calculation was well frankie edgar seems like a, a viable contender with a little bit of momentum right now you kind of want to save him as your backup plan to fight Jose Aldo a little bit later on, assuming Jose Aldo keeps the belt. Uh, or if you need, you know, say Conor McGregor beats Mendez and then beats Aldo, then, then who do you fight? Well, then you got, then you're going to want another contender to, an unbesmirched contender hanging around. I think that might, might have played a little bit more into it. And I think that it helps that the team alpha male guys are known for kind of staying ready. So, that in people's minds won't be as big of an issue to go and get Chad right. Mendez on late notice. So that's the point that I wanted to talk about next and probably to close out this round. Chad Mendez, we think, comes into this fight on very short notice, although were I Chad Mendez, and maybe this is easy to say in hindsight, but if you were Chad Mendez and you found out Conor McGregor and Jose Aldo were going to be do this UFC 189 thing, it kind of would have been a good idea for you to stay ready so you didn't have to get ready, right? Because Indeed. Even if you hadn't had it spelled out for you, I think you could see the writing on the wall. As we record this, Chad Mendez is going off as a slight underdog in this fight to Conor McGregor. Uh, and we, the only way that we can even make sense of that is to think that it probably has to do with the short notice aspect of this. Because I think if you strip away Conor McGregor's instant celebrity and the hype around him, if you had a dude whose UFC wins were Marcus Brimage, Max Holloway, Diego Brandau, Dustin Poirier, and Dennis Seaver, who is going to go in and then fight uh, Chad motherfucking Mendez, hard for me to believe that that dude would be a favorite over a, over an actually a Chad Mendez with a, with a complete training camp. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, and that is one of the things that's kind of factoring it. Like when we were making our picks for the uh, MMA Junkie uh, staff picks, against a healthy Aldo and against McGregor, I pick Aldo. When I thought Aldo was going to fight with some broke-ass ribs – uh, and gonna try to suck it up and do it anyway. Then I was gonna pick McGregor. And then McGregor against a Mendez on short notice. I don't feel great about it, but I'll still pick McGregor. Uh, Mendez and, and McGregor both with, you know, eight weeks or whatever the hell they want to train. Then I might be more inclined to pick Mendez. Uh, I do think though that I think Conor McGregor is the right kind of fighter to not be too thrown off by a major change in styles. I think if Chad Mendes is going to be able to beat him by having that different style, that, that wrestling heavy style, it's going to be just because McGregor isn't ready for that level of wrestling, at least not ready for it yet. I don't think it's going to be because he didn't have a chance to fully prepare for it. I think that the, the best stuff McGregor has going for him there is Mendes taking it on short notice and also just the kind of size and height and, and range advantage, which for McGregor's style depends so heavily on really controlling the space at all times. He's not necessarily the kind of guy who's going to be easily trapped up against the fence for one of those, you know, in close clinch takedowns uh, where you just bury the guy into the fence and then work him down. I think that fighting that guy in the big cage, he has the opportunity to move around and maybe hurt Mendez on the way in. We've seen that that can kind of work on Mendez if you do it right. I don't feel great about it, but I'm taking Mendez here, regardless of the the short, we believe, training camp, the short notice that he comes in. And that is, A, just based on uh, the chaos theory of mixed martial arts, that whatever is the <laughs> wrong thing to have happen will indeed happen. Uh, and also, I'm just going to go ahead and take the guy who is the more known product. We know that Chad Mendez is 
completely accepted and regarded as one of the top two or three featherweights in the world. Conor McGregor could be smoke and mirrors. We just don't know at this point. And obviously, like we said, if he knocks out Chad Mendez and wins this fight, then you got a proven commodity on your hands. Right now, I'm going to take the proven commodity that we do have, and it's Chad Mendez, even if he comes in uh, on short notice. I think the the change of style and the wrestling and his ability to to dish out damage on the mat is going to be too much for the Irish dandy. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Now, Ben, we have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week, which we only do on special occasions, and I think this one uh, qualifies. Well, do you want to tell the people what the joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me? is this week? Yeah, and you might think of this week's Are You Fucking Kidding Me? at the end of round one as just kind of a little runway straight into round two. It's an aperitif. That's right. And a moose-bouche. I'm going to throw this out there, Chad. Giblert Melendez. Are you fucking kidding me? Jacare Ronaldo. And here I'm doing the air quotes. Air quotes. Souza. You fucking kidding me? Thomas Lawler. You fucking kidding me? Michelle Gagnon. You fucking kidding me? Gleason Alves. I don't even know who that is. You fucking kidding me? Demian Baptista. You fucking kidding me? Mark Hughes. Oh, now that I would buy. I actually would buy Mark Hughes. You fucking kidding me? Kevin Swanson. You fucking kidding me? Robert Rob Whiteford. Who? You fucking kidding me? Flexibility. You fucking kidding me? And lastly, Connor, we all know you are the crazy guy inside the octagon. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about this Reebok debacle in round number two. Chad, we have seen the future, and the future is Reebok, at least in the UFC. Now, last Tuesday in New York City, we saw the big unveiling in a darkened room from a dystopian hellscape. I couldn't really see too much of what was going on, but it looked like everybody was dressed the same, and they were about to be dropped into that playing area on the running man. I assume right now, uh, Ronda Rousey... And Roy McDonald are both fleeing Sub-Zero, and best of luck to them. Uh, but in the meantime, first of all, does it not seem like... Okay, I'll give you a few mistakes here or there, Reebok. I'll give it to you. You, you know, you, you have a bunch of fighters to deal with. Some stuff is bound to go wrong. This is all very new. On the other hand, you had months, months and months to plan for this. And there were an awful lot of mistakes both at the ceremony and on the gear that Reebok rolled out on online. Does it not seem like the half-acidness with which this was done is maybe telling about the what's going to happen here with the deal itself? It was kind of shocking, really. Like, I don't want to... You know, you don't want to come across like just a hater. You want to do no, like... we wouldn't want to do that. ...measured criticism. But at the same time, like... You have to consider this one of the worst product launches from like an actual major legitimate company what ever, you, right? What, like, can you imagine? From all those apparel product launches you've seen, what was the second worst? 
Well, I mean, the, the, we do these things all the time. Like we see these all the time in like the tech world, right? Where Apple gets on stage to announce the iWatch or whatever it is. And and can you imagine another actual legitimate company like Reebok or Apple or Nike doing a launch that goes this bad? Like they misspelled the word flexibility on a giant screen during the launch. This would have been like if Reebok had scored, I don't know, an NBA apparel contract and they released their new Steph Curry jersey and it said Wardell Curry the second on the back. <laughs> or if they put out a jersey for Blaron James. You know? Yeah. Like that level of of fuck up, frankly. Yeah. Well and you're right. I mean we mentioned on last week's podcast that it was kind of doomed to get a poor social media reception from MMA fans. Right. If it was the greatest thing in the world, we all would have hated it on Twitter because that's what Twitter does. But the best, it also wasn't the greatest thing in the world. That's right. Like the best thing you could have hoped for is that people would look at it and been like, oh, you know what? That's actually, that's actually not that bad. That's better than I thought it would be. And they did not get that. They did not get anywhere close to that. And I mean, the actual, like the little fuck ups are one thing where that's just kind of a thing for us to point and laugh. I mean, you can fix the Giblert Melendez mistake pretty easily as far as the actual gear though i think that it's almost overshadowed by the hilariousness of the other mistakes uh, which are easily fixed is that it seemed to me like one of the things that everybody the concern that a lot of people voiced when we first heard about this reebok deal was and you're going to take away the fighters individuality they're all going to look the same it's already hard enough to tell one prelim fighter from the next you're going to make it even tougher and just homogenize the hell out of it and it's going to hurt the, the product in the end. And we were assured over and over again it wasn't going to happen at the launch itself. Reebok executives got up there, talked about, threw around words like customization, talked about how every athlete gets to meet with the designers and make their own individual look. And then when they started coming out, it was like, wait a minute, why are they all wearing the same thing then? Or so close to be to the same thing that it might as well be the same thing. Yeah, well, you know, when we see the guys and the, the girls actually wearing this stuff, uh, during the walkout and, and in the cage, I guess starting this weekend at UFC 189, we'll have a better idea of how it's all actually gonna look. And I have a feeling that once we see it out there, we'll be like, eh, it's not that bad. But that, that's not even really my major concern coming away from this first, uh, look that we got at, at the, how the Reebok stuff is gonna look. You know, my concern is about the quote unquote replica kits that we saw online, which was where many of the spelling errors and name mistakes took place. Cause we were told the, a while ago that even though the payouts were a little bit lower than we anticipated for the per, per fight, uh, payouts that fighters were going to get, that they were going to have the opportunity to make some of that money back in terms of merchandise sales. And at this point, we must assume that for the average ordinary person who didn't score the Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey sponsorship deal, like that money is going to come from these replica kits. And the problem that I saw when I just, you know, you just glance at the list is that the replica kits, surprise, surprise, are all the same for the most part. They just have different names on the back of them. And they're kind of awful. And they cost between $85 and $95. So and if, you're just buying a UFC shirt at that point that just you, happens to have a fighter's name on the back. Possibly even, spelled right. Even if you assume that you are a fan who is of the mindset that you are going to buy those shirts, right? Even if you assume that that fan exists, if they all look exactly the same, except that they have different names down the back, and they cost 95 bucks. 95 bucks. How many of those can you be reasonably expected to buy, even if you are the biggest UFC apparel fan in the world? One? 
two. Like you're not going to, if you have 10 favorite fighters, you're not going to buy all of their, their shirts from the, the replica kit of Reebok, right? Like maybe you buy Junior Dos Santos if that's your guy. And I'm thinking that's it because you're not going to fill your, your dresser with all the same UFC shirt that just has different guys names on it. So like, I think you immediately start this thing from severely limiting your marketability. Yeah. And it does seem like that when I saw that, and I'd heard this from a couple of the other people in the MMA related apparel biz, when I was working on a couple of those stories where I talked to guys from, uh, you know, dethrone and bad boy and, and Hayabusa and some of those other people. And one of the things that I heard consistently from them and also from a few different fighter managers was, we're not sure to what extent Reebok is necessarily planning on selling stuff. Like, like how big of a, a piece of their plan for this deal is, and then we're just going to sell a bunch of UFC gear related to these other fighters. Like they might think of it in terms of like, well, we're going to sell some Anthony Pettis shirts, some Ronda Rousey shirts, some Conor McGregor shirts, but they're not going into this thinking. And then we'll get that sweet, sweet money from the Kevin Swanson shirts and, uh, you know, will be rolling in money. It doesn't seem like that's a big part of their plan for it. And so then to, tell, to turn around and tell fighters, hey, don't worry about your upfront payout. You're also going to be able to get some money on the back end as a piece of these shirt sales. That's got to be the moment where you look at it and realize, okay, that money's never coming. Like, right. What's what's 30% of zero, Chad? <laughs> I saw someone else say this on Twitter, and I thought it was a really good point that like Reebok could have paid some UFC fanboy 20 bucks an hour to go through that list and proofread it, right? And make sure that they had all the names right. But I think bringing up Kevin Swanson actually brings up another kind of good point, which I've also seen people make on social media and, you know, is something that we probably should have said from the beginning of this Reebok thing. And that is if you have a guy or a woman who's who you are a fan of in the UFC and that person has a website where they sell merchandise like Cub Swanson, for instance, has the killer Cub gear. Go to that person's website and buy that stuff because they're going to get that money. Don't buy this Reebok stuff. Like, go to Josh Barnett's website and buy his shirt. That's your move. Yeah. Not well, this stuff. Even if the person doesn't have a website where they have gear, like if you're a big fan of Thomas Lawler and you want to support him and, and buy his Reebok shirt, no, if you, if you care about the man at all, make out a check for $95 to Thomas Lawler, mail it to him and ask him to go through his t-shirt drawer and just pick out a t-shirt that he owns that he thinks is cool, maybe write his name on it and send it to you and you will both be better off. He will have the full $95 instead of having Reebok take a cut and you'll have a shirt that really can't be that much worse and has a better story behind it. There you go. I solved everybody's problem, Chad. And this harkens back to the first point that I made about what a terrible launch this was. Like, I think we've come to expect this kind of stuff from the UFC, right? We know their MO is to call a big press conference and announce a thing that they have not figured out at all. And then, like, rush it through the production process and put put a version of it up on the internet that totally stinks. And later they will come back and, like, massage it a little bit. The shocking part is that to see this from Reebok, right? And like, obviously I have no idea how they, they operate and, and you know, the, what they're, what the normal is for, uh, Reebok's operating competency, I guess you would say. But like, it kind of seems like they totally half-assed this thing. And that's my opinion from the outside looking in. That could be completely off base. Maybe the greatest minds in all of athletic apparel put this stuff together, but like just looking at it, uh, it doesn't look like they spent that much time on it. 
You know, I think you're right about that. And I think that also maybe some of it is that we in the MMA bubble need to take a step back and think about what this deal actually means from Reebok's perspective. Because to the UFC, it's obviously a big deal. In the MMA landscape as a whole, it's a big deal. We hear these numbers thrown around like, you know, $70 million or, or whatever it is. Uh, and we necessarily assume like, okay, this is, this is a big deal for everybody. Uh, and therefore it's a little bit more surprising to, to see that it looks like, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, you, you totally half assed this shit. But I think, and I was reading a story. I, I, I think it was on bloody elbow. I think Zane Simon wrote it for bloody elbow, maybe, uh, talking about, uh, kind of comparing what other apparel brands have paid other sports leagues for exclusive deals like this and how it's so much more basically now for maybe for Reebok this does not represent a huge amount of money that this this is the half-assed amount of money this is a half-assed deal for them maybe uh, and that they put about as much energy into it as return they're expecting to get on it I don't know I mean that does seem like maybe like the most cynical interpretation that we could have of this but then at the same time you look at what we actually saw in that unveiling and from what we've heard like it seems like so far as from the perspective of mma fans reebok has paid a bunch of money to have a bunch of people mad at them right which doesn't seem like a great move yeah and i think that you make a good point it's it's possible that that they found this deal to be a good value buy and for that money they're basically going to have they're basically going to own an entire sport from an apparel standpoint in the same way that that Fox, for what it may have thought was a very reasonable price, was able to corner the market on the UFC in terms of live sports broadcasts. So yeah, man, maybe maybe this was just like a uh, maybe they just pulled up the couch cushions at at Reebok Mansion and found some change under there and used that to do this UFC deal. From our from our perspective, uh, it seems like poor execution. But like you know, like we said, we're just getting started with this thing. Uh, we'll see where it goes in the future. Uh, we know where it's been in the recent past, and that is nowhere good yet. Well, we'll also get to see it. I think it's going to be interesting to see it in action this weekend and to see exactly, like, if you're right, like, if we see them all walk out in it and think, well, maybe it's not quite as homogenized as we thought it would be, or if we see, you know, especially on some of these fight cards that have 12 or 13 fights on it, by the time you get to the, the co-main and main event, does it just feel like we're watching a bunch of interchangeable characters in a video game? Whereas my wife was saying, hey, you know what would be fun is if we had any Photoshop skills at all between any of us uh, to go and take all the Tekken characters and put them in Reebok gear and see if that makes it seem like uh, they have gained individuality. Yeah, I'm going to just make them look really professional yeah, and clean. Yeah, so professional. Going to really elevate the sport of Tekken fighting. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, lo and behold, there is a welterweight title fight on UFC 189. Did you know that? Wait, are you sure? Yeah. It's, Did you fact check that? It seems like uh, now that the main event has been scrambled and reshuffled, 
that uh, we're circling the wagons back to this welterweight title fight, giving that a little bit of lip service, too, here during the final push. And anybody who shows up to watch UFC 189 to see Conor McGregor fighting uh, Jose Aldo with a different haircut will probably be pretty surprised to find George St. Pierre looking pretty different, too. <laughs> As Robbie Lawler takes on Rory McDonald for the 170-pound title, both guys come in with three-fight win streaks. Rory McDonald's last loss obviously was at UFC 167, a split decision to Robbie Lawler. Robbie Lawler's last loss, UFC 171, a unanimous decision to Johnny Hendricks. Uh, and here we are, a welterweight title fight, which, as I said at the top, seems tailor-made for Rory McDonald in that it could be really awesome, and it kind of seems like everyone's still going to be like, meh. Yeah. Well, okay. In fairness, I mean, you're right that the UFC did pretty much totally overlook this one in the promotional efforts because it was putting all its eggs in the Conor McGregor-Jose Aldo basket, which, as you previously noted, uh, is the best way to make the MMA gods perk up their ears and, and drag themselves off of their, their rocky bed atop Mount Zion, peer down at us mortals and say, well, that looks like something I could fuck up. It's the shortest distance between you and a fiery comeuppance. That's right. So there was that. But then also when you think about it, okay, a fight between Robbie Lawler and Rory McDonald, let's just face it, man. There's not going to be a whole lot of awesome sound bites that come out before that they're, they're not going to give you a whole lot to work with. As far as promotional material, the best thing you can hope for is to show their fight highlights and to hope that people just know, especially about Robbie Lawler, that he has awesome fights and hope they know, I guess about Roy McDonald, that he's just a weird dude. Yeah. And that's going to be enough to interest them. You're not going to get the same pre fight hype work that Conor McGregor has put into this. No way. Understood. And Robbie Lawler and Rory McDonald did that one joint television appearance really early on in this process where they were kind of smoking and joking like friends who were going to set aside their good feelings for each other long enough to have a fight. Uh, And that was kind of the last you heard about them. And I understand what you're saying. And obviously Conor McGregor has been a revelation kind of with his charisma and his innate ability to ability to, uh, to talk and sell a, sell a fight. But aren't we just hearkening back to the idea that after, you know, a, a history of fight sports that goes back to the, to, to the dawn of civilization, we really at this point only have one way to sell a fight. Like that's always kind of disappointing to me. Like, couldn't we have done something different for Robbie Lawler, Roy McDonald made it seem like they were going to have a, an awesome fight without, them engaging in a bunch of professional wrestling style histrionics. Like sure. that could be done, right? Sell it to me. I'm, I'm sitting right here. Well, I don't have my video editor set up, but I could probably put together kind of an awesome uh, highlight package of knockouts and Rory McDonald doing cool stuff. Uh, See, that's again what a, I'm saying is with the a only dubstep thing... <laughs> soundtrack. You lost me. Maybe you had there. me and you lost me. <laughs> that's what I'm saying though. Is the best thing you could do there is basically just replay some of their fights. And show us some highlights, which is not a bad thing to do. You could go ahead and do that. Show me uh, Robbie Lawler making Melvin Manhoff drool his own blood. Uh, that ain't bad. But you're you're not going to be able to make the same kind of noise with just fight highlights in an ad the way you will with the, the outsized personality of Conor McGregor. And I think the UFC kind of realized that. It seemed not that long ago, though, that we were talking about welterweight as kind of an awesome place. George St. Pierre had departed. Robbie Lawler and Johnny Hendricks had gotten into this 
uh, lengthy series of bouts that were all, you know, pretty awesome and resulted now in them trading the title back and forth. You had Rory McDonald, you had Tyron Woodley, you had a guy like Matt Brown, heck hell, you had Tarek Safadine coming over from Strike Force and beating some people, and you had uh, Benson Henderson poking his nose in, beating welterweight contenders. Now it seems like we've gotten to this point where we're like, yeah, the best welterweight fight you can make, Robbie Lawler versus Rory McDonald, just isn't doesn't really do much for us. That seems like a precipitous decline it is a little bit also you have to remember that it's a rematch and rematches only get you so far a lot of times when it comes to selling the fight i mean i think that the hardcore still know this is going to be an interesting fight this is a good one to see it definitely sweetens the pot of ufc 189 a little bit i can also see though how when faced with the marketing question of how to sell this one the ufc figured do we want to split our efforts here or do we want to just go all in on the guy we know is the most sellable product we have on this card? Now, you would say that the the chaos theory that you mentioned earlier tells you exactly what's going to happen when you do that, especially when you do it when there's involving an oft-injured in, uh, UFC champion. But I'm sure the UFC probably thinks that it cannot afford to do things via superstition and felt like it was probably still the best strategy. I don't know. I mean, I still think... I, the the claims of, you know, you're going to do a million buys are obviously batshit insane, especially now. Uh, but I do think that there's going to be plenty of people who come for Conor McGregor and maybe the extra added little oomph, if they're hardcore enough to know about it, of Robbie Lawler or Roy McDonald is the kind of thing that gets them to go from, well, instead of just trying to find the gif on Sunday morning, I'll get a few friends together and shell out for this one or go to a sports bar and watch it or something. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying. I think it's also kind of interesting to to go down that path. We assume that Conor McGregor is this draw who's going to move pay-per-view units, but he hasn't shown that yet, right? Like he has this fanatical fo- following uh, in the fictional country of Ireland, and we, you know, he obviously talks a great game and he's good with the media, but at the same time, like he ain't sold shit yet, right? Like you guys only been on pay-per-view once before UFC 178. Against Dustin Poirier, they were not the main event. They were not even the co-main event. And so it'll be interesting to see the number come back from UFC 189 uh, and see if it did affect things to have Jose Aldo out and Chad Mendez in. Or to see, I don't know if it, if we can look at it and, and, and consider it a referendum on Conor McGregor's ability to draw, but like... We're all kind of leapfrogging to this conclusion that Conor McGregor is going to be this big pay-per-view star, but the proof hasn't exactly been borne out yet. So you, my dad's not texting me about Robbie Lawler. That's true. The, he passes the your dad test. That's right. And once we put that up on the website, everyone will know. Yeah. They will see the back and forth. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be just captivated by it, too. Uh, well, we're, what's different here? Anything going to be different about this, uh, Robbie Lawler, Rory McDonald fight than, than the first time they did the damn thing and Robbie Lawler eked out a, uh, a split decision victory? Well, I think one of the things that's going to be different is you got five rounds to work with here and yeah, that fight very well could have been different. At the same time, though, I, I was kind of surprised. I would have picked Robbie Lawler to be the favorite here. I'm still picking him to win the fight. I know that Rory McDonald is, an ever-improving fighter, has a lot of things he does really, really well. Uh, and he could go out there and win three of the five rounds against Robbie Lawler. I would not be terribly surprised to see that. And yet, also in a five-round fight, I have to consider, if it's going to end 
within in, inside the distance who has the best chance to win that one. And I say it's Robbie Lawler every time. Yeah, the odds for the main event and co-main event at UFC 189 are a little bit strange to me. Like, if I had 20 bucks that I never wanted to see again, parlay Robbie Lawler and Chad Mendez, a couple of underdogs. Are, are you saying you don't have $20 that you never want to see again? Look around this, this lap of Man, luxury. Man, I room. got two kids. I got mouths to feed. I need to buy formula and diet. You, you know what you forget? How much a newborn shits. Holy cow. Just going through diapers like they grow on trees over here. You know, you can buy those reusable kind. You can wash them and everything. Yeah, we're not running a weird hippie commune up on a hill like you guys are All right. over there. And it's easy for you to say you never washed a diaper in your damn life. That's not true. So uh, Not true at all. I, and I, I'm sure your children will enjoy playing on the enormous trash heap mountain. That you're contributing to. <laughs> if I sent you into the back room right now, I don't even think you would be able to turn that washing machine on. You wouldn't even know your way around it. You're talking about your washing machine. Yeah. You'd be like, where do you put the coins in for this thing? Since the last time you did laundry was, was in college at a laundromat. See, that's the joke there. It's just so untrue. It's hurtful and it's untrue. All right, Ben, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Chad, I'd like to read to you a statement. Oh, Yes. It goes, in light of recent reports regarding the status of UFC featherweight champion Jose Aldo, UFC has received official medical confirmation from several doctors that Aldo did not suffer a broken rib. Following a review of the scans, it has been determined that the champion suffered a bone bruise to his rib and cartilage injury during training. I'm just saying that statement... Uh, which includes the words official medical confirmation, which don't mean anything at all uh, because you could just find different doctors. That came a day after Jose Aldo had the scan that, according to other doctors, including, as your your colleague Jeremy Botter from Bleacher Report found out from a former San Diego Chargers team doctor, said absolutely did show a broken rib for Jose Aldo. I'm just saying... When it comes to official medical confirmations about the bones in people's bodies, maybe you should be sure you're right before you go just saying stuff. Wow. Just saying. Just saying. A rib injury that baffled medical science on two continents. Or the most baffling out, rib, rib injury of all time, perhaps. Or turned out to be exactly what Jose Aldo's camp said it was at the very beginning. Well, ben, Either one of those things could You be brought up Jeremy Botter, my cohort at Bleacher Report. I hope I'm not doing too many spoilers here. He has a story, a feature story coming out about Conor McGregor later this week in advance of UFC 189. It'll be on Bleacher Report. It'll be on CNN.com. Uh, I hope I'm not giving away too much here, but part of that story is that Conor McGregor uh, at least partially credits his success to the book known as The Secret. Have you heard about that? You know what the secret is, right? I, you know, when I heard about it was when it inspired Rampage Jackson to go out of his damn mind and drive through Southern California on the sidewalks and shit in a giant ass monster truck with his own picture on it. Right. It is the self-actualization, basically power of positive thinking, uh, bullshit, basically. So this week, I'm just saying, man, that makes Conor McGregor seem like 1,000 times less interesting to me, Ben, because previous to this, I would have told you that my favorite thing about Conor McGregor was when he stopped the trash talk for a minute and he would get kind of mystical. 
on you. He would start talking about his visions and how he he had already seen himself winning the featherweight title, how he knew it was going to come true, maybe a little bit uh, Manny Newton style, like mm-hmm. the big homie. Back I would have told realm. you that was the, the most interesting thing about Conor McGregor. Come to find out, it's all just mumbo jumbo from the goddamn secret. Damn it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at the reshuffled UFC 189 and look ahead to things to come. As for right now, though, we're going to get out of here. We are done. We are through. We are out. Here's what I want to know. How many copies of The Secret can they sell before they can stop referring to it as a secret? I'm telling you what I would do. If I was going to read The Secret, I would just think positive thoughts about the book The Secret being in my bedroom when I